You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the season premiere of the From the Hack Curling Podcast. We start this season with two conversations. My first guest of the season is Catherine Henderson, the CEO of Curling Canada. And for the seventh consecutive season, Mike Harris joins me to share his thoughts on the upcoming season. My first guest this week is Catherine Henderson, the CEO of Curling Canada, who joined me to discuss several important topics, including Curling Canada's recent decision to require proof of vaccination for anyone entering one of their events this season. We also look back at last spring's Calgary bubble and also discuss recent rule changes that the World Curling Federation announced that they will be testing at this season's Men's and Women's World Championships. So, Catherine, Curling Canada recently announced that they will require all athletes, fans, staff, and media to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 in order to participate in or attend affiliated events hosted by your organization. Many would call it a sensible decision, while some would call it controversial. What led to Curling Canada ultimately reaching this decision? And I'll start off by saying I think it is a very sensible decision. Uh, you know, but it's not a decision we take lightly. So I will say that, you know, we sat down with our stakeholders, uh, you know, and we really looked at um, kind of public health guidance, legal guidance, uh, and, and we sort of looked at our role and what, you know, what ultimately are we here to do. And it's to manage risk, and ultimately it's to make sure that people have a safe, happy, and enjoyable experience. And so the taking, taking kind of who we are and who the people that, that we are responsible for taking care of Given the COVID situation and given the, I, I think, where we wanted to go and the advice received, it really came down to it was really the only decision that we could make um, in order to keep the most people the safe, the safest most of the time in a curling season. Now, did Curling Canada end up consulting with officials from other sports and other federations during your decision-making process on this particular issue? Because I know it's a situation that many different sports have been tackling over the past couple of months. You know, I certainly talked with some of my colleagues uh, about this. Um, in different areas, but I also, you know, we're an employer, uh, and we are, you know, we're, we're a national sport organization. We're also an employer, so I looked at what other organizations were doing. Um, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, we're also, a, a, you know, kind of an event organizer, and I looked at what other events were doing. So, you know, you looked at the news about what Live Nation, for example, was doing, which, you know, you may not think, okay, music concerts and curling Canada, but, you know, the, there was lots of venues that were doing these things. So if you take a look at, you know, many of the venues were starting to say no one comes in the door without a vaccination, but because we're multi-venue and it changes every year and it changes by city and size and scale and whatnot, we, you know, we kind of looked at more like a Live Nation type of um, uh, model where it's to say, you know, we're like the circus that rolls into town and then, and then we're out and we may be in another venue elsewhere. So, you know, we were looking at some of our peers, I would call, in the, in the event space. Uh, we were looking at what was going on in tourism bodies, and you know, and that's really the idea of, you know, gathering places and festivals and and restaurants and and you know, you know, amusement parks. Uh, so we were looking at things like that, and then of course we were really looking very hard at. We've got a lot of athletes that are trying to qualify at this point um, for the honor of, of you know being Team Canada and wearing the Maple Leaf on their back and going on to international competitions, and we were looking at what 
was going to be required in some of those international competitions as well. And so we want to keep the athletes safe until they have to go, and then they have to be qualified to go as well. So I would say this was a really deeply layered look at the situation that we found ourselves in and lots and lots of stakeholder consultation. I want to take you back to last season for a moment, Kathy. We're now some four or five months removed from the end of the curling bubble in Calgary. How proud and perhaps relieved were you about how all things considered the Curling Canada events went inside the bubble? Well, yeah, I mean, great assumption. Um, you know, let's start off with, you used the word proud and relieved, and I would say those are probably the two perfect words uh, that we did. I will say, you know, the, the, you're right, the bubble was never punctured. Uh, so the people that we were, you know, kind of there to keep safe were kept safe. Um, there were we we did have some hiccups, but they didn't turn into anything more than a, than a hiccup um, because we were able to follow our own pro- protocols with the support of some pretty incredible people. Um, you know, if, if I can call out a couple of people, you know, Danny Lamoureux and Nolan Thiessen who were there. Um, uh, you know, Al Cameron in working with the media. So we had some unbelievably good staff. And I, I will tell you, we met every single day, like, during the entire bubble, it, like, in the couple of weeks leading in and actually even for a week afterwards. We met every day at the same time, sometimes two or three times a day, to do some troubleshooting and to try and understand a situation that was constantly changing and that there was kind of, there was always new players and new stakeholders and new people arriving in. And, you know, with those, it brings all those nuances and subtleties that you have to deal with. But a great team that always did two things. And, you know, and this is what I'm really proud of, and, and I guess I, I'm relieved that it worked. One is safety, first and foremost. That was the only thing that really mattered. You know, if we had to step it up and spend more money to test or to, you know, to, to provide more protection for people, we said that that's what we were going to do. Um, and, and uh, you know, another one I would say is kindness. You know, we really tried to do this. We realized this was frightening for a lot of people, and there was some anxiety coming into a bubble. And what we really wanted to do is to make sure that the people inside the bubble that we were working with uh, and, and, and the people that were coming in knew that they were going to be treated with a great deal of respect and that we were going to understand their anxiety and that we were really going to work with them to make it as comfortable and as easy a solution as you can in the middle of a global pandemic. And I think, you know, I really have to commend the staff and I have to commend uh, the people, you know, the, the people that we worked with in kind of in our hotels and at Windsport um, um, were just amazing. And, and we ended up, uh, you know, pulling off something that was very, very successful. So proud and relieved are perfect adjectives. Now, the sport of curling took a hit during the pandemic. There is no doubt about that, with several clubs closing permanently and others shutting down for most of the last year and a half and perhaps uh, stretching into this season. How confident is Curling Canada that the sport will be able to rebound at the local level in Canada in a post-pandemic world? Well, there's a couple things that, uh, you know, I want to say. First of all, I should have called out the board as well. I mean, you know, to take the kind of risks that we get, and I wouldn't call them reckless risks, but they are they have to be very well-managed risks and and we needed the partnership of our board. So um, um, they were with us hand in glove, and, and we were really we were thinking about things from our bubble but all the way down to the club level. Now, as you're probably aware, the clubs are not our members. Our, PS, our provincial sport organizations are our members, and uh, those clubs belong to the PSOs, but they've been terrific colleagues to work with. Um, two things. I think one is Curling Canada, you know, in partnership with those member associations, is able to offer uh, – quite a bit last summer and, and over this summer is return to play protocols. But also we've been doing a lot of webinars, a lot of education on marketing to, to new audiences, to, you know, to make sure that the club is, you know, they are going to lose some members. Some people have decided they're not comfortable curling. You know, how, do, how do we bring those people, how do we bring new people in? 
how to make your club as safe as possible, how to create maybe a more inclusive environment for people who maybe have never curled before. So we've been doing quite a bit of work there. I would say the other thing that Curling Canada did, and we do these things um, that are within our control, is uh, we were very actively involved in working with our government partners uh, at the federal and provincial level to make sure that there was um, funding available, emergency funding available for clubs, and then um, demonstrating the clubs how to access that funding and how to use it in order to keep their clubs, uh, you know, to keep their doors open and keep themselves, even if you have to batten down the hatch just for a little while, how, you know, you, you can use those funds to get through this very risky, fraught period and come out on the other end. You know, I'm, I'm not sure anyone's, you know, saying, geez, I knocked it out of the park, but people are saying, you know, we're stable and we're able to continue to go, uh, you know, continue to go. So, you know, we are seeing now, we, we've got patches of places that are starting to see some, some rises in, in cases, but I would say for the most part there's sort of cautious optimism with the clubs now that we've got high vaccine levels, and there seems to be a really a, a good desire to return to play. Uh, so, you know, again, so it was education, it was advocacy, it was communication, it was support, and, um, and I think, you know, if there's any silver lining, and I can't, I, I, I almost dread using that word, is I think um, we became a more aligned system and we were all supporting one, one another um, very much during this, this whole ordeal. Curling Canada recently announced that it will be consulting with a group of athletes uh, from some of the country's elite teams on a more regular basis. Can you take our audience into what the role of this new group will be? Yeah, you know what, I think, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, elite, elite curlers, so I'm, I'm talking about curlers that, that really, um, you know, are in a position... And, and, you know, to, to represent us internationally. These are curlers that can wear the maple leaf on their back. Um, you know, we realize our, you know, our programs become more complex. They're more competitive. The world is getting better. Um, you know, everyone wants to beat Canadians, uh, you know, which is one thing we're very proud of. If you want to beat Canadians, it means that we are generally, um, you know, it, it, you know we're, we're pretty competitive. Um, but, you know, we're a national sport organization, we're an amateur sport organization, so as it pertains to things like Olympic and Paralympic Games, um, it pertains to things like, the, you know, the different disciplines that we have, and it, you know, pertains to things like world championships, um, which are different, you know, different types of curling, that's where you are representing your, your country. Um, we felt that uh, while we do reach out to athletes on, a, on an ongoing basis um, and ask them, you know, the, the conversations we're having is saying we perhaps need something more formal. And so this group isn't really becoming an athlete's council. What they're going to do is advise us on how do we make sure that that athlete voice is, is, is well heard within the organization and that we're having a really productive conversation with these elite um, high-performance athletes, both from an operations perspective. So that would be, you know, Curling Canada, you know, the, the organization that, that I would be I would be leading, but um, also from a governance perspective, and, and that's that's our board. And um, you know, we have a chair, Amy Nixon, who was a, a you know who, who competed internationally and represented Canada, um, you know, very successfully on a number of times. And um, you know, and she's she's very passionate about this as well, and wants to make sure that the board gets a chance to listen to, you know, the concerns and maybe the risks identified um, by by the athletes, and then as a board to make sure that those risks are being managed by the management team. And so I, I'm really excited about this and I am super grateful. I mean this is a this is a you know a pretty busy time for, for curling athletes um, and very, very grateful for the people that have stepped stepped up and, 
and said that they would work for us. And we've also had other athletes, um, you know, that have, have advised us that, you know, probably weren't named in or weren't, were not named in that, but have been have been really great in, in helping us understand, the, you know, the future needs of the athletes. And finally, Kathy, the World Curling Federation recently announced some rule changes for this season's men's and women's worlds. Changes that surprised and frustrated many of Canada's lead players. Uh, how much does the World Curling Federation consult with national federations like Curling Canada when decisions of this type are being considered? So a couple things. First of all, you know, they do elect an athletes commission. The athletes commission did take a look at this, but I will say um, there's a lot more consultation that's going to happen between now and any changes that are going to be made at the World Championship. Um, you know, I, I sit on that committee of maximizing the value, and what we're trying to do is to create larger audiences, more engaged audiences, and more people in the world interested in curling. Um, we've done a lot of research, and I think we know that there's areas in the area of pace of play um, and, and uh, that, that we could likely improve upon. So there's been some consultation. I think what what maybe you know is misunderstood by a lot of people is these are not absolute um, rule changes. These are rule changes that we are going to consult upon. And the reason that we picked the the World Championships um, in this area of the quad is is that's a year that it doesn't affect um, um, you know people's Olympic hopes. So it is a good time that you bring lots of athletes together and you can try a couple of new things and then get their feedback on them without it really adversely affecting their um, their Olympic hopes. So we can try a few things, but I will say the things that were mentioned, we still need to do some more work and we will be interacting with athletes and our athletes commissions um, in order to figure out exactly what we're going to do. My next guest this week is 1998 Olympic silver medalist and Sportsnet and CBC curling broadcaster Mike Harris, who makes his annual early season appearance on the podcast. We cover many subjects, including teams we should keep an eye on in the early season trials qualification events. What type of lineup changes Mike anticipates to see among the top players as they prepare for the next Olympic cycle starting later this season? And Mike takes out his crystal ball to predict a story that is currently under the radar that might become a much bigger story in the world of curling before the end of the 2021-2022 curling season. So, Mike, obviously last season was a lost season for most curling teams outside of the few that ended up playing in one or more events in the Calgary bubble. Even then, most of the teams got a lot less reps than he would in a typical season, obviously. So do you think the lack of playing time last year will have had a bigger impact, a negative impact in this case, on younger teams that lost a year competing at the highest level? Or on the flip side, do you think it may have had a bigger impact and a positive impact on some of the seasoned teams who got an unexpected stretch of downtime to rest old injuries and perhaps even keep their players fresher for the current season, which is the all-important Olympic season? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, for the very young teams, you know, say the team's just trying to get into that first level of, of pre-trials and stuff, it, I think it hurt. Um, you know, basically, Curling Canada has, has allowed teams into the playdowns for the Olympics based on results from two years ago. So, you know, basically, it was a wash from last season. So any any young team's... And, you know, realistically, not that they're going to win the trials, but, you know, just getting there and getting the experience and just having another year of competitiveness under their belt certainly would have hurt them. Um, and to your point, you know, a team, like I think of a guy like Brad Gushu, who's always kind of battled 
uh, fatigue with his legs and knees and uh, the injury that he went through. I think he'll be fresher than normal uh, for this season. So that that's probably a good thing. Um, and then, you know, if you look, if we kind of go beyond the scope of Canada, I mean, you look at a team like uh, Team Moet in, in Scotland, and they actually uh, just completely changed uh, how they, you know, their, their bodies physically changed. They, they did a ton of work in the gym, and they saw immediate results last year in the bubble, I thought. I mean, they won two slams and, and uh, you know, made it to the world final. And, and for my money, between them and Adine, they're, you know, they're, whoever represents Canada is going to be chasing those two teams in, uh, in Beijing. So, uh, yeah, you know, when you look at a pandemic helping a competitive team, Bruce Mowat's a great example of a team that really used their time wisely. And, again, having an advantage of being a funded athlete and all of those things that Canadian teams don't uh, kind of have the, uh, you know, the privilege of, of uh, that, uh, that type of freedom, financial freedom. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, time will tell, obviously. But um, the pandemic, I think, uh, as a general statement, I think it hurt more teams than it helped. As you know, Mike, uh, the qualification process for the 2021 Olympic trials has been tweaked a little bit by Curling Canada because so many of the teams last year played a limited schedule, making it difficult for for all those teams to accumulate points. So they've basically created, Curling Canada that is, basically created an additional layer of qualification events for the trials and the pre-trials. My question to you, Mike, is... Do you see the possibility of a team that is participating in these qualifying events potentially not only making it to the trials but challenging for a spot in Beijing? Well, I I would lean more towards the teams with experience. Just like like I said, there the 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 Canadian younger teams miss out on a valuable year of 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 playing the top teams, right? So I think to expect that some you know an un, use of you know quote unquote unknown like a tyler well tyler tardy for example is a great example of a young guy just out of juniors and he's he's you know obviously has going to have some success pretty quickly but you know it's it's less likely that he a guy like that will make his way through and even if he does get through he's certainly going to be hard pressed to make a dent at the trials so yeah losing a year for the young teams is going to be tough you know and then you look on the flip side of it you know Teams like, uh, you know, he'd say bring back Glenn Howard again, but Glenn, you know, his experience will, will do him a ton of favors at a, you know, they got a five or six teams for two spots sort of thing. Like they're going to be, they're going to be tough on a short runway, right. To, to, to beat. So, um, you know, that whole battle hardened theory of Canadian curling, which has always been kind of our, our strength, right. You end up, you know, the team we send to uh, any of world, either world championship or, or an Olympic games tends to be very battle hardened. And that was always, Oh, that's, that's great because we have so many teams to beat, but I think that pool has kind of shrunk a little bit because of losing that year. So, um, you know, again, not to say that there won't be a, a surprise or two, but um, it's just going to be that much tougher for the young teams. Now, Mike, if you were one of the teams already qualified, either on the men's or women's side, say Agushu, Jacobs, Homan, Anderson, or one of the others, is there a team that you would be quietly cheering against because you would not want to see them at the trials? Not necessarily because they'd be a challenger for the Olympic berth, but because they are good enough to play spoiler during the round robin. Well, I think the best team not on that list that you just listed to me is Matt Dunstone. 
Um, I think they're the team that's going to, you know, they they can seem to get better each time I watch them play. So they're that that's a team that that uh, can certainly do some damage, and they could win the trials. So they're, they're you know they won the bronze last two years that the briar was held. <laughs> Actually, we didn't miss the briar, did we? We were in Kingston a couple of years ago. And yeah, yeah, we had yeah. The briar last year. Seems uh, hard, hard to keep track, but, uh, you know, Matt Dunstone's a team that, that can do some damage. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there's, uh, you know, Epping, obviously, is uh, he has his moments when he's on. Incredibly difficult to beat. You know, he's won a couple slams. So on that's on the men's side. On the women's side, it's a little tougher to predict. You know, as I said, you've got the top three there with Jones and Homan and Anderson and, I think there's a bit of a gap beyond that. I think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's just hard to see beyond those three, to be honest. I mean, I, I it would be, it, to me, it would be a pretty big upset if uh, if someone else won other than those three. The, uh, you know, the, the the only person that's won anything in the last couple of years other than those three is Chelsea Carey, and she's kind of uh, persona non grata with Curling Canada for whatever reason. There, you know, she's not, I don't, I don't think she's in, even in the, the first level of trials, and um you know for someone who's who's won two scotties in the last seven or eight years that's uh that's kind of a little bit of a surprise um a couple of young teams obviously there's a young team out of uh, bc that's pretty good uh you know and then you know we've got we've got you know there's a couple of good teams in ontario but again not, not none that really strike me as as really posing a a serious threat to to um the top three so um it's gonna. I think for for me, for my money on the on the women's side, and and even internationally, it's it's so deep. You know, there's so many so many good teams. Like we're you know, if we don't send one of those top three teams there, we're gonna be you know, even if we do send those top three teams, we're it's gonna be hard to win at the at the uh, in Beijing. But uh, it's uh, it's a it's a tough uh, tough sled uh, for 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 many teams, and mostly because again, sim- what we're talking about, COVID that one year off really hurt a lot of teams you know there you know we really didn't get a chance to to develop any any kind of up-and-coming talent you know kelsey rocks the team that uh in alberta that that obviously is is uh you know kelsey's won two world juniors and really is very good laura walker again another team that that could benefit but you know laura's kind of new to skipping she could benefit from from a you know more the more games the better for them leading into into something like the trial so um, beyond yeah, again, beyond Kelsey and, and Laura, you know, it's it's really tough to to say who's going to threaten to to win those trials. Yeah, I mean, you hear a lot of people talk about Brad Jacobs winning the trials in 2014 as an upset victory, but a lot of people seem to forget that that very team, Team Jacobs, had won the Briar just a few months earlier. And you know, to his credit, I mean, they, and they had to go through the pre-trials as well. You know, and then there's 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 the inspiration for every team that's uh, having to pre-qualify is they ended up playing John Morris in the final both of those teams came through the pretrials. So, you know, it can happen. So I think, you know, for Curling Canada, you know, they're, you know, I've, I've spoken to, to different people uh, in that organization organization over the years, and the thought always was for the pretrials and, you know, the pre-pretrials in this case, it's great to give uh, some young teams experience in, a, in an arena setting. But, you know, it's, again, it's you're pretty hard-pressed to have someone that hasn't won a big event like the Briar to, to kind of sneak through, you know, and, and end up, uh, end up winning. Although the first two trials, uh, you know, <laughs> it was us and, and, uh, and uh, sorry, not two of the first three was us and Brad Gushu who, who snuck through, hadn't won anything. So, uh, you know, it, but it can happen, but it's, it's, it's really difficult to, to say that uh, that would be the, the norm. 
So, Mike, I thought I'd uh, spend a couple of moments here uh, speaking a little bit of inside baseball or inside curling, if you will, with you. Uh, there was a lot of chatter late last season about the creation of a new Players Association, a subject that Brad Gushu openly discussed on an episode of From the Hack. What have you been hearing about how that idea has evolved over the past few months? Well, I guess it depends on what, what the players want to decide their voice is. You know, that's the, you know, I, I know there definitely is a Players Association change in the works uh curling.com is kind of trying to do their own thing in terms of broadcasting events and i know kevin martin and you know this kevin would be a great guy to talk to about this and and uh brendan botcher is heavily involved with what's going on with the new movement i guess is the best way to put it but it's not really a new movement it's a kind of a renewed movement you know it's kind of the ongoing saga of you know people thinking that the players you know someone's making a lot of money off the players and i just don't see it i mean that's this is my honest opinion you know i'm always pretty straight with what i what i say and i just don't see where this is any different from anything i've seen in the last few years you know hopefully we're going to see some more access and some more um you know for for the fans from the fans perspective the ability to see some more games on tv all that sort of stuff but whether or not they have a voice or not i mean that's they you know at the World Curling Federation, although they have a they have a players advisory board, and I know they they do listen, and they're you know despite what we hear in Canada, I think the WCF actually is very open and receptive to to many of the ideas that are put forward by the players, and um, you know whether or not that's going to going to translate into to what's best for Canadian curling or not, that's that's to be determined, I think. Um, but I, I mean, my experience, the the people, they're very aware. When I say they, Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, they're very aware of what the top players are are talking about and what they're trying to to accomplish. So, you know, I I I, I do I always kind of listen in with uh, I'm I guess I'm skeptical. I don't know that it's so bad that the players need to to, to be making massive changes, but at the same time, you know, it's one of those if, you know they want a sense of control. I don't know what the right answer is there, but I think I think at the end of the day, uh, yes. So the short answer is yes. There's something brewing long answer i really don't know exactly what it's going to entail and and uh, i'm somewhat skeptical as to how much change we're going to see and what the way things are done one of the interesting things that happens in the final season of an olympic cycle mike is all the player movement that occurs following the trials as curlers switch teams in an effort to position themselves for success in the next cycle now i'm wondering if you think what we'll see in the next cycle is a continued movement towards the development of super teams in Canada. I think we are already there on the men's side, but I'm wondering if you think we might see more quote-unquote super teams on the women's side this time around, especially after the success of Team Anderson the past couple of seasons. Uh, short answer, yes. I think I think it makes sense because, you know, like I said, the, the competitive advantage that we have in Canada, you know, kind of that, that thought of being battle-hardened, the depth of our talent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera it only holds water up into to a certain level of skill, right? So you can't, if you're restricted by the region that you live in, you know, Canada's massive. So, you know, it would make sense that you would have more and more super teams. So that would involve uh, loosening up the rules a little bit for Scotty's playdowns or, or maybe changing the priority of, you know, who goes to the world championship. So moving forward down the line, you, you might, you might have to figure out a way to, to, and you and I have talked about this. I think the word, the verbiage that they use <laughs> for the Scotties and the Briar playdowns, you know, in terms of 
being a domestic player or an import, I think the, ver- the, the way they've worded it is, is completely incorrect. So, and uh, makes, makes it restrictive for the athletes. So, you know, that's the old, you know, because you're born in a, in a province doesn't mean you're, that should give you the right to play out of that province. You know, ask, ask the people in Prince Edward Island about Brian Cochran playing out of there for the Briar a few years ago. So um, exactly. anyway, the way they, the way they've worded it is to me is, is detrimental to, you know, allowing teams to find the best team. <clears throat> you know, when you, when you want to scour the country for a, for a team, it's, it seems uh, kind of counterproductive. So they need to change the rules a little bit there. That's where maybe a player's council can, can certainly, uh, discuss things with curling Canada, but again, nothing that curling Canada doesn't know already. So, so I guess that's a long way of saying, yes, I anticipate change, but um, with the way the rules are written right now, I'm not sure how easy it's going to be for teams to actually make that uh, commitment, you know, you know, understanding that when you hear of someone living in a certain province, knowing very full well, they have a job (laughs) in a different province, which happens fair amount anyway. So let's just, you know, what, what's to stop us from just say, okay, let's just find your best team and pick your province and off you go. I mean, one team that has become increasingly familiar with that discussion is Team Holman, who have been representing Ontario for well over a decade now, but have gotten a lot of flack because three members of their team currently live in Alberta full-time. point is, there is zero reason, in my opinion, that, that Rachel can't continue to play at Ontario if they change the rules. What and and I'll I'll just say it here the the way I'd like to see it played. So Ben Hebert's another great example of a guy who's from Saskatchewan who's played out of Alberta for the last how many years? Fifteen years? Ten 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 years at least? Call it since he played with Martin in twenty ten. So it's probably thirteen or fourteen years. He's now lives in Alberta, and even if he moves, his job takes him to Vancouver or Saskatchewan or Manitoba. There's no reason why he shouldn't be able to continue to play out of Alberta if he wants until such time as he goes in that province's playdowns where he moves to. So much the same as Rachel. She's never represented Alberta in anything, but she should be allowed to continue to play out of that province until if she decides to go in the mixed playdowns in Alberta, that would just completely, that changes everything, right? So, but my, my view on it is until you've actually played out of a different province, the fact that you've changed provinces for it could be for work, it could be for family in Rachel's case, you know, there's a ton of reasons to move provinces, you know, in your life. But if you don't choose to represent a different province, you can continue to play in that, in that province forever, as far as I'm concerned. And I think that would be a much better way to write the rule rather than everyone in the, pro- in the country knowing that, you know, you've got three of the four people that are playing on Rachel's team are now living in Edmonton. And, and what, the heck's going on like how do you actually justify that right so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense right so the the rules written incorrectly in my opinion and and um you know rachel you know talk to jennifer jones she's you know what she says she she uh she's born and bred manitoban and she wouldn't want to represent any other province she lives in barry <laughs> right so so you know it's one of those things where we've got people not it's not only rachel it's jennifer jones there's a ton of athletes all over this country who are representing provinces, um, in my opinion, that they should be representing. It's okay, but the rule is written incorrectly. Now, do you anticipate a certain level of turnover at the elite level in Canada in the next cycle, Mike, with some older players perhaps retiring? Or do you believe that most of the top players in the country are going to stick it out for another cycle? I mean, to be honest, I mean, I don't know how old they are. I mean, 
Y'all seem young to me now, Frank. That's, <laughs> that's how it works. But but you got yeah, exactly. Uh, Kui's probably the oldest, right? Of of the kind of the elite level skips, and he's not getting any worse. It, I don't see it anyway. You know the real the real challenge is like I think of a guy like Ben Hebert, like playing front end now. It's just such a difficult thing to do. Um, Brent Lang, another guy who's you know into his forties, and it's hard. It's hard to play front end. <laughs> In your 40s, you know, back end, I think you can play back end right up as long as you want. And Glenn Howard's proving that as long as you're fit enough and healthy enough and the desire's there. I mean, that's, that's to me, has always been the, the biggest thing for Glenn. Like, how do you stay interested? That's, you know, that, that was my biggest question for, for a guy like Glenn. But, you know, he just loves it. And, and, and we all love it for whatever reason. We all love curling. But, you know, when I look at how old the players are, you know, I don't see a ton of guys that are really old and like I said like I said we keep thinking Glenn's gonna but Glenn will just keep playing like I mean Glenn's probably the last guy I think of their time <laughs> at what is he 50 50 yeah, I believe that uh, Glenn is uh, something like 57 maybe even 58 uh, although I don't want to age him uh, faster than he already is so sorry Glenn if you're not 58 yet Jennifer Jones has got to be on her last cycle right like that's Jen and Brent are the two to me that come to mind immediately about uh, retirement Beyond that, I mean, no, I don't actually don't see a ton of options. Mark Kennedy's talked a little bit about changing, but he's, you know, he's found his place with Jacobs, and it happened, they happen to win. Whoever wins, I mean, if Jennifer Jones wins the trials, which you know, as, as say as unlikely as it seems, but is it that unlikely? No, not that. You know, like I said, he's probably third ranked of the teams that are still going right now. Um, you know, would she give up? the next four year cycle of endorsements and money and because it's big business for, for the Western teams, you know, they're, they're doing, I want to say, I don't know how, I'll just say hundreds of thousands of dollars in endorsements. Right. In, 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 so it, it makes no sense financially to retire. You know, there's not like there's a pension program with the, with the Canadian curling association or the world curling tour. Right. Uh, but anyway, at the end of the day, and you know, I think, uh, yeah. So to answer your question, I don't see a ton of, it was, I think to me, the biggest one was when you had kind of had Stout and Martin Howard, we thought was going to retire at that time, but you know, a couple of guys like Rich, Rich Hart. Um, so there, there was, there was a bunch of, you know, veteran skips there, but Gushu was, he, I just saw, he just joined the 40 club or something, right. Him and Mark. <laughs> right. So, they're all of 40. I mean, that's not old for, you know, you might see a couple of front end guys, you know, like said, uh, Jeff Walker, you know, in his, into, you know, well into his thirties and like said Ben Hebert and a few guys around and, you know, Johnny Moe might, uh, depending on what he does, you know, you might see him move on and, and finally, Mike, I've had the pleasure of interviewing you early in the curling season for the past five or six years. And each year, I end our interview by asking you if there is something that is under the radar in the sport of curling at the moment that you think will become a much bigger story by the end of the season. So I'm going to ask you that question once again this year. What do you see in your crystal ball, Mike? What do you think is under the radar in the sport right now that is likely to become a much bigger story as we head into the latter half of the year? Well, Good question. I, I, I well, there's I, I just there's a couple things that kind of spring to mind immediately. I think um, uh, Team Mowat has kind of changed the rules a little bit about how how good teams need to be on <laughs> playing runbacks and that sort of thing. I think they've you know there's been a few teams over the years that have really kind of changed the way the game gets played. You know, Jacobs was one. Kevin Martin's team with Ben and Mark and Johnny Moe and and uh, and go way back to Furby and 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 Wernick and you know, just you know there's. There's been stages of things that have changed, 
And what Mowat did at the at the at the Worlds and at the the two Slams, and then he's already won an event this year. Really changed the way things go. So I'm 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 excited to see teams try to kind of keep up with them. I think the secret their secret is out. You know, like I said, the the pandemic really really uh, helped them in, on many levels. But the um, the big thing right now is, is these rule changes the World Curling Federation put into place, right? With uh, the potential for the uh, draw to the button instead of having an extra end. You know, there was there was three rules. I can't can't remember all of them exactly right away, but the big one was oh timing per end, which I don't see that making a you know so, there's been all kinds of squawking about that where you know it's a disaster and all this sort of stuff. But for me, that 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 actually rewards a smarter team, you know, a team that's a better strategy. And the no extra end thing we did at the world at the World Cup a couple of years ago, and I actually quite liked it. I hate to say that way, but it what it did do. There's two things. One, it's an immediate results so uh and it's exciting for the fans and the other thing was it did change how you played the game going into the last stand of play so being one down with the hammer statistically you're losing you know 60 to 65 percent of those games now you're not as afraid of being one down anymore you know i you know again who depending who you talk to there's a lot of people on that even end rule but i just think it's actually not as bad as the players think it's going to be it's very exciting. There's lots of great changes, and uh, I foresee they're all going to be put into play immediately after the Olympics. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my prediction. And that does it for this week's episode and our season premiere. A big thank you to Catherine Henderson and Mike Harris for joining me on the podcast. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game podcast, and the Curling Legends podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.